All right. Let us start with the the Shanti mantra. Om Bhadram Karne Bhi Shrinuyama Devaha Bhadram Pashe Makshabhirya Jatraha Sthirai Rangai Stushtvagam Sastanubhihi Vyashema Devahitain Yadayuhu Swastina Indro Vriddhashravaha Swastina Pusha Vishwavedaha Swastina Starkshyo Arishtanemihi Swastino Brihaspatir Dadhatu Om Shanti 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 So in the Mandukya Upanishad, Mandukya Karika, we are doing the third chapter. Um, the Advaita Prakaranam, the chapter on non-duality. Here the subject is Gaudapada, Gaudapada Acharya, the author of the Karikas. Remember, this text is a three-layered text. At the core is the Upanishad itself, which belongs to the Atharva Veda. Gaudapada is not the author or anything like that. And then around that it is uh, Gaudapada, about 1500 years ago, composed these verses called Karika in four chapters. So that's written around the Upanishad. The first chapter includes the Upanishad itself. The Upanishad is embedded in the first chapter. And around it, Gaurapada wrote four chapters of these verses. And the third layer is the commentary of Shankaracharya, who has written a commentary on the Upanishad and the verses also. So usually it is studied together. Um, we call it Mandukya Karika. In the third chapter, Gaurapada wants to uh, talk about the non-duality of the self. When we talk about non-duality, we keep saying non-duality, but what does it mean? Um, it means that there is one reality and no second reality apart from it. The ultimate reality is one and there is no second reality apart from it. And that ultimate reality is you. Us, our, our, our essential reality is that ultimate reality. That's the meaning of the famous Upanishadic equation, Atman is Brahman. Atman means our reality. Brahman is that one non-dual non -dual reality of this universe. And this grand theme, Gaurapada wants to prove in this third chapter with the help of um, reason and uh, argument and back it up with, um, with Upanishadic sources, with references from the Upanishads. Why references from the Upanishads? Because after all, what is Vedanta? Vedanta is uh, the philosophy based on the Upanishads. So, Gaurapada, uh, he's not going to claim that it's his invention or anything like that. But, um, so he's going, he, he's, right now we are at that stage. At the beginning, if you remember, Gaurapada introduced the example of the sky and the pot. And showing that the, the so-called space inside the pot, the pot space, is actually not born. It's an appearance, it's an error. It seems to be different from the external space, but really, the space with there is no such thing as a separate space within the pot. It's an illusion created by the existence of the pot. What does it, what does that want, what is he showing there? There is no such separate thing as an individual being like us. Our, if we investigate ourselves, we come to one reality which is existence, consciousness, bliss. Yet we appear to be different. 
just as a space within a pot appears to be different from the space outside and appears to be different from, from the space in other pots and it can be used as such. In, you can say I'm using it for storing milk or water or there is clay in this and so on and so forth. It is used in different ways, um, it is given different labels, um, you say something is pure or impure, good or bad, all those labels can be applied, all those transactions can be carried on, but the fact doesn't change that there is one unbroken space in all the parts. Similarly, the fact is we are one undivided existence consciousness bliss, not separate beings. We may act as separate beings and we, we are called by different names and all the labels that we apply, good and bad, happy and sad, healthy and diseased, they all apply to the, to the what are called the adjuncts, in, in, uh, technically upadhi, to the body-mind. So, when you say non-dual, there are two meanings. One is that uh, the jivas, sentient beings are not second real or second, third or or millionth or billionth reality apart from Brahman. We are all that one Brahman, first. Second meaning of non-duality is, even the universe, this physical universe in front of us, including our bodies and our minds, these are also not second reality apart from Brahman. Non-duality of the jiva, jiva means sentient being, we are not a second apart from Brahman, hence non-dual. Non-duality of the universe, Jagat. The universe is also not a second thing apart from Brahman. Now the way Gaudapada wants to put this is in the language of causality. Causality. What is the language of causality? The way religion is normally taught or science or anything. Causality is a basic principle of reasoning. Um, that's how we reason in the world. Is that there is some reality called God. And God is the creator of two things, the individual, us, and the world, the universe. This is how religion is taught. So God is the cause, and these are the effects. Really, an individual or a universe, really these are produced by God. This is how it is taught, this is dual, dualism. Uh, dvaita. What we have just said, non-dualism, literally means if there is no second thing called an individual apart from God, if there is no second thing called a universe apart from God, then this, clearly we are experiencing individuals. There is no doubt about that. Non Advaita does not deny that you are experiencing it. But what Advaita questions is the reality of what you are experiencing. Adv we don't question that somebody saw a snake, but we are questioning, did you really see a snake or are you mistaking a rope for a snake? You don't question that you see the sky as blue. But what we question in physics is, is, it, is the sky really blue or is it an optical illusion created by the scattering of light? Similarly, what Gaurapada is saying is that it is not true that the universe and the, the individuals are effects created by God. There, there is only one non-dual reality. appearing as a dualistic universe, if these are not effects, if these are not effects, that non-dual reality alone is appearing as these. In that case, God is also not the cause. If it has not produced anything, 
if it really there is no individual which has been produced, if really no universe has been produced, if you ask the rope, you take the rope to court and say, why did you become a snake? The rope will say, what? When? <laughs> I never became a snake, it's your problem. You made a mistake for your confusion. Why are you blaming me? Only confusion is in between these two. Confusion gives rise to cause and effect relationship. So if God did not produce an individual or the universe, if nothing is born of God, nothing is born of God, then God is not a cause also. It's not a cause. If this is not an effect, God is not a cause. So the ultimate reality, non-duality is beyond cause and effect. Beyond causality. What I'm saying is, in the third chapter, Gaudapada wants to prove the non-duality of Brahman. And the approach he has taken is to show that, that Brahman is beyond causality. If something is beyond causality, it's neither cause nor effect. First you show that the effect is, you cannot deny that the effect is experienced. But what you can question is, is it a reality? Is it a separate reality? No. Sit down, sit down. Is it a separate reality? No. If the effect is not a separate reality, then the cause is not a real cause. You can say it's the basis for that illusion of the effect. It's a basis for the appearance of the effect. The rope is the basis for the appearance of the snake. But it did not. The rope never really produced a snake. Rope is not really a cause of a real snake. So what Gaudapada has done is, by showing that non-dual reality is beyond causality. Using the language of causality, he has proved non-duality. He used an example. That is, the pot sky example. Then he went on to show that um, taking various quotations from the scriptures, from the Upanishads, that what he is saying is supported by the Upanishads. And that's what we were doing last time. We saw a quotation from... Uh, Briyadaranyaka Upanishad and um, one from Taittiriya Upanishad, uh, Madhu Brahmanam and then one from Taittiriya Upanishad. Alright, so let's go on now. With the pot and sky example and with the Upanishads, he has shown that really the jiva, the individual being is not a product of Brahman. What is the individual being? What are we? We are Brahman. We are Brahman. <laughs> Though we appear to be different from Brahman, though we are called by names that are jiva, individual being, though we behave and indeed believe that we are different from Brahman, a gold necklace might as well believe that I'm a gold, I'm a necklace, I'm not gold. A wave might believe that oh, there is something called water, but anyway, um, I'm, right now I'm a wave, I'm not water. Similarly, we are under the error that we are not, that we are not Brahman. Whatever this Brahman is, whatever it is, I am not that. It would be nice to be Brahman, but I am not. What can I do? I am trying my best, <laughs> but I am not. It's, it's, it's like the wave saying that if I could be water, it would be nice, but right now I am a wave, I am not really water. Also, how much effort does the wave have to put in to become water? Nothing. All the effort is ne necessary to clear up the delusion, the error that it is not water. 
Similarly, how much effort do we have to put in to become Brahman, the non-dual reality? Nothing. All the effort, there is effort. All the effort is to be directed towards creating, to, towards removing the delusion, the error that I am not Brahman. In the simple direct language of the monks in the Himalayas, they put it this way. Uh, what is the gap between, what is the difference between, the, the distance between you and Brahman? Is the distance physical distance? Do you have to go somewhere? Heaven, Vaikuntha, the abode of Vishnu, Kailasha, the abode of Shiva. Do you have to go? No. Is the distance between you and Brahman one of time? You have to wait. Until death, after death I will find. After, look at the words, after. Space time word is there. Not there, here. Time word is after. So after death will I find Brahman? Is it like that? Hmm? Not very sure. Let me ask you. It, it, it often happens. People say that. Even the example, the wave and water example. People say that, uh, uh, yeah, it's a wave, but after the wave subsides, it will become water. No, 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 no. Of course not. Right now it is water. Yes. Sorry, these are very good examples to illustrate. Yeah. They don't prove anything. No, they don't. He's, he's resorting to scriptural authority to basically make the claim, right? This is, this is a great illustration. Right. Uh, the, the sky and the park, the wave and the ocean, great way <coughs> for us to perceive what he's trying to say. Right. But they don't really prove it. They don't prove it. They don't prove it in, in the sense of a logical proof, no. <laughs> these are like um, arguments based on scripture and analogy. But the reference is, see, if it was not a matter of our personal experience, all of these would be just nice theories and scriptural claims and good examples. But the greatest thing is what he's claiming. This is the most important thing. What he is claiming, it's a matter of our most vital, intimate experience right now. Right now. Let me complete the thought. You'll see what, what I'm driving at. He's saying that, I'll tell you what the sadhu said in Hindi, but first the build-up. So is it that you have to go somewhere to become Brahman? No. Do you have to wait for some time to become Brahman? After death? After the dissolution of the universe? So these are all backed up by Shrutis. They're Upanishadic statements. Before all of this, this was one reality before. Chandogya Upanishad says, all this was pure existence before. Before what? We not, the way it is normally said straight away is before the universe was created. So after the universe will be destroyed, maybe a big crunch, everything will become one reality. So we have to wait till the end of that? Uh -huh. No. After? No, no after. No after. After Samadhi? Uh, spiritualists begin bring it down to spiritual. After, after Nirvikalpa Samadhi? Or after the Divine Mother appears before her or Sri Ramakrishna, then only we are Brahman? No. Right now. You know it or you do not know it. One sadhu used to teach us. Whether you know it or you do not know it. Whether you accept it or do not accept it. Tumhi Ram. <laughs> you are Rama. <laughs> so Tumhi Ram. I still remember him. He is a huge man. <laughs> He's sitting there. I was sitting at his feet. And he looked down and he chuckled and he said, uh, he said uh, in Hindi, Kya Mahatma Ji, bari ulti darshan hai. This is a very contradictory philosophy, isn't it? You, you, are, you are God, you are Rama. 
whether you accept it or not, whether you understand it or not. So it's not something to be done. The distance between you and Brahman is not space. Okay? Distance between you and Brahman is not uh, time. Distance between you and Brahman, this is, open, this is Vedantic uh, reasoning. Distance between you and Brahman is not object also. What I mean by object is, I am one thing now and Brahman is another thing. Somehow I have to become that. I'm human. I have to become divine. Is it that? It's like the wave saying, I'm a wave. I have to become water. No, no. The distance between you and Brahman is not object also. I'm uh, translating from the Sanskrit. Desha kala vastu. Desha means space. Kala means time. Vastu means object. The difference between you and Brahman, the distance between you and Brahman is not in space, is not in time, is not an other, you and the other. No. Then what is the distance? Right? And yet, you may say, Swami, I don't feel that I'm Brahman right now. It's nowhere in my experience or understanding. Then what is the difference? Ignorance, Ignorance is the polite term. The sadhu, sadhu said, Aap me or Brahma me kya antar hai? Keval bevkufi mahatma ji. Only stupidity. <laughs> he says, only stupidity is the, di the distance between you and Brahman. What is the difference between you and Brahman? Neither space, nor time, nor object. Only foolishness, confusion is the difference between you and Brahman. Ignorance is a very philosophical term. <laughs> yes. Could, could you remind us uh, why the separation has happened in the first place? It has not happened. It's like the wave asking, the wave asking, why did it happen? All this is fine, but tell me, why did it happen that I became a wave? I was water, it was fine. Why do why? we think it happened? Uh, why do we think it happened? Because of confusion. But you say, why is the confusion there? There's no why in confusion. The only thing they say is, when you say, when you begin, come to this point that if you begin to accept, it might be confusion, it might be error, then... What they suggest is, the teachers, don't ask why anymore. Remove the confusion. In the, in the words they use, the Vedanta teachers say this, Agyan ko stapit mat ki ji, agyan ko kati. Don't try to establish ignorance, try to cut down ignorance. But, but I mean, if, if Brahman is bliss, and we are in Brahman, and why, why have we ever not been in bliss? Mm. Why, what happened? That's right. That, that's what we are trying to find out. <laughs> so, so we'll we'll find out. Yes. Yeah. Um, so this is where we are at. Now let's go ahead. Now what the next thing is going to do is the Upanishads. We have we have already shown by uh, other Upanishadic arguments uh, or uh, Upanishadic statements that you and Brahman are the same. We saw in the Brevaranik Upanishad and the uh, Taittiriya Upanishad. Now remember, one more thing is there, that not only you are not different from Brahman, but the universe is also not different from Brahman. Brahman did not produce an universe. That's what we are also saying. There is no separate universe also, world also. If that is so, um, then the question arises, and Upanishads also say this. Katha Upanishad says, Neha nana astikinchana. There is no plurality here whatsoever. We are seeing plurality. Here, see. And yet the Upanishad asserts there is really no plurality here whatsoever. There is only oneness. If this is so, now the question at this point is, wait a minute. 
aren't you quoting selectively? There are many passages in the Upanishads which talk about the production of the universe, creation of the universe, Brahman as the cause, universe as the effect. There are many, many passages. <coughs> what about that? Why aren't you quoting those? You're just quoting selectively things which, which support you. That the universe is not created, that only Brahman exists. So let's look at the, the objection raised and the answer. A very powerful answer is given. We are now on verse number 15. 15, chapter 3. So what, are, what is he going to show? He's going to take up, he's going, he's, he wants to show that the Upanishads support his contention that no universe was ever produced by Brahman. And he takes it up by showing those passages which seem to talk about the production of the universe, creation of the universe. Why? What are those passages and why do they say that? 15. Mrilloha vishpulinga dhyay Mrilloha vishpulinga dhyay Srishtirya choditanyatha Srishtirya choditanyatha Upaya sovataraya Upaya sovataraya Nasti bheda kathanchana Nasti bheda kathanchana In those various passages where creation of the universe, Srishti or projection of the universe has been talked about. There are passages like uh, it, he just indicates. So you have to really know your Upanishads uh, forward and backward to understand what he means. The, what he just said is by the examples of clay, sparks, um, uh, um, iron, clay, iron, sparks. Srishti, creation of the universe, has been spoken of variously, in various ways. Why? Upaya, because it's a way of teaching non-duality. Avataraya means, um, so that non-duality will dawn upon us. That's a very beautiful way of putting it. Avatariya does not mean Krishna, Rama, or it means non-duality will descend upon us, or dawn upon us. And this is as an upaya, a method of teaching. Nasti bheda katanchan. In reality, there is no difference whatsoever. Alright, let's break this up and see what he means. Um, let me quickly refer to the passages. He has talked about, um, there are three examples in the Chandogya Upanishad. In the Chandogya Upanishad, it says, pure existence alone existed. And then, from that came this universe. Just as one um, clay appears as many pots, and the pots are nothing but different names and shapes, but they are the clay alone. In the same way, there is only one existence which appears as this entire universe with different names and forms. And further, O Shweta Ketu, O Son, O Disciple, that one existence you are, Tattva Masi, that thou art. Then he takes up another example, just as one piece of gold appears as multiple ornaments with various names and shapes. Similarly, that one existence appears as all the things of this universe with different names and shapes. And that one existence 
you are, O Shweta Ketu Tattvamasi, uh, that thou art. Again, just as one piece of iron appears as many iron instruments like nail cutters, he actually refers to nail cutters in the Chandogya Upanishad, Nakan Nikrintana, nail cutters, literally. And it's around three to four thousand years old. Not surprising, people would need nail cutters <laughs> from the very beginning of <laughs> history. So as iron appears as various instruments like the nail cutters, but it's the same iron under different names and shapes. Similarly, one existence alone is there, which appears as this entire universe with all names and shapes. And that one existence is you, O Shweta Ketu, Tattvamasi, that thou art. So this is the example. But what the questioner is interested in is, ah, but from clay pots have come, isn't it? That's what the Upanishad said. From iron, iron nail cutters have come. From gold, ornaments have come. And so the Upanishad said, from pure being, existence, the universe has come. Upanishad says that. So why are you saying that nothing has been produced whatsoever? That's the question. The other example is from the Mundaka Upanishad. The example of the sparks. All he just says, sparks. The example of the sparks is, Yatha Sudiptad Pavakad Prabhavanti Sahasrasa Vispulinga Prabhavanti Sahasrasa As from a well-kindled fire, blazing bonfire, thousands of sparks emanate. Similarly, all this universe has emanated from the imperishable reality, from Brahman. The questionnaire says, wait, look at that. What did it say? It has emanated. It has come. So it has come like sparks from the, from the source. And you can multiply such examples. It's there in many, many Upanishads. Taittiriya Upanishad. I'll quote it and translate. Tasmad va e tasmad atmanaha. From that Atman, which is the same as Brahman. Akasha Sambhuta. Space appeared. Akashad Vayu, from space came uh, air. Vayur Agni, from uh, air comes fire. Agnir Apaha, from fire comes water. Adhya Prithivihi, from uh, water comes um, uh, the earth, um, and so on. So, look, again the questioner says, look, it has come. The five elements out of which the universe is built has come from this Brahman. Upanishad directly says it. How much more direct can it get? Another, in the Mundaka Upanishad it, itself, it is there. Vishwam. A very poetic uh, and beautiful description. Very ancient, three, four thousand years ago. As from a spider emerges and is withdrawn the web. As from the earth emerge herbs and shrubs, as from a living human body emerges hair and nails. Similarly, from that imperishable reality emerges this universe. And our questionnaire is saying, look, it says, it has emerged, it has come. So that imperishable reality is a cause, it's God. And here's a universe which has been produced. And so duality, not non-duality. Causality is there, and is non-duality. So, I mentioned this earlier, the spider example. Indologists mistook it. I remember reading a, a well-known uh, Indolo British Indologist who writes, the ancient Hindus worshipped a spider. 
No, didn't worship a spider. It says yatha, just like as an example. <laughs> uh, I mean, all across temples you'll find all sorts of things. There are uh, there are fish and elephants and uh, whatnot, uh, lions and snakes, but not a spider. <laughs> Strangely enough, uh, but so uh, it's an example. So what's the answer then? This is the question. So what is the answer? All the Upanishads, many of the Upanishads, they speak about this creation. So what's the answer? The answer is in the second line. Upayaha, one word. Upaya. It says, this is a method. This is a, a technique. A technique of showing non-duality. How do you know it's a technique? Because those very same Upanishads, after speaking about creation, then they deny the whole thing altogether and say there's only one reality. Nothing ever was produced. And nothing ever was destroyed. It's the one reality alone, alone appearing as many. So what is this technique? What is this technique? It's called Adhyaropa Pavada. I mentioned it earlier. Superimposition and desuperimposition. It's a way of teaching us. Because we, our minds are so set in duality. In subject-object. In causality. Directly if you say there's oneness. Obviously there's no oneness. Where is oneness? You'll have, to be sh you'll have to be shown that there is oneness. And this showing us takes steps. If you remember Aparokshanubhuti, when we concluded it, at the end, this, this was taught, that there is a method which is followed in Advaita Vedanta. At the heart of the Advaitic methodology, at the heart of Advaitic methodology is this. It's called superimposition, desuperimposition. First, you accept what people take for granted. And then lead them into what you want to show them. Accept the duality which people take for granted. Accept the causality. Something creates something. And then take them into non-duality. Then take them beyond causality. So the example, if you remember, very nice example was given in Aparokshanubhuti. What was the example? Standard clay pot example. We start with the idea, here is a pot. And that seems to be obvious to us. What does the, what, what, what do I want to prove to that person? That actually it is clay and nothing other than clay. So from pot vision to clay vision, how will you take that person? So first he is told, yes, it's a pot. I agree with you, it's a pot. And I'm introducing something that the pot is an effect. It's an effect, it's a product, it's created. Behind it, it at its source, is a cause. Cause means a material cause. The material out of which it is produced. What is the material cause of a pot? That question will come to that person's mind. Oh really, what is that? I, am, I know the pot, but you are saying that it's produced, it's an effect, it's a modification, it's a creation. From what? From something called clay. So now you have two. Pot and clay. Cause, by cause I mean material cause. Effect. Material cause means the material out of which something is produced. Upadana karanam in Sanskrit. So cause and effect. This is stage one. We'll have four stages. Stage one. What is stage one? Introduce the cause. Stage two. Stage two is let him find out the cause. Where is the cause? Right now he thinks there is a cause and an effect. What is the effect? The one which I'm holding now. Pot. And there's a cause. Clay. Now stage two. Please examine the effect. Pot. Oh... What you are touching is clay. 
Inside when you touch it, it's clay. The top is clay. The bottom is clay. In fact, the effect is pervaded through and through by the cause, clay. It is clay and clay alone. Right? So you have found that the clay, the, the, the cause is immanent in the effect. It is there, right there in the effect. Third, third stage. You find there is no such thing as an effect at all. Where is the effect? No such thing as an effect. The thing is the clay. Are you with me, third stage? Now I ask that person, where is the pot? So here, no, that's clay. You just admitted it's clay. What you're holding is clay. What you're touching is clay. What is the weight is clay's weight. Where is the thing called a pot? Pot is a name. I agree with you there. Pot is a shape. So, all right, name and shape. But the name and shape, do they have any independent existence apart from the clay? No. Does the pot have any existence of its own apart from the clay? No. The pot cannot exist in the, in the air without the clay. The clay is the one which has existence. The clay is the one which has substantiality. The clay is the one which you are holding. The clay is the one which makes the pot possible. Without the clay, you cannot give it the name pot. Without the clay, you cannot even use it as a pot. Name, form, transaction, which is the very material of transactional reality, Vyavaharika, they are all dependent on clay. And the reality is clay itself. Third stage, we, are, we show that there is no such thing, reality. I'm using the word, stressing the word, thing, as pot. The thing is clay. All right? See, already magic, pot has disappeared. Those holding it, this <laughs> pot has disappeared. Now, fourth, last. If there is no such thing called pot, there is no such thing called an effect, then the causality of the clay disappears. Remember, clay does not disappear. Clay is there. But it's not a cause. It didn't produce anything. You cannot call it a cause. Because it didn't produce anything. Hence, the causality, the effect itself disappears. And the causality of the cause disappears. The clay remains as neither cause nor effect. So, wow, this is really something. <laughs> now you apply it to Brahman and the universe. Like the pot, here is the universe. And we agree, yes, universe. Now put it through the four stages. This is Adhyaropapavad. When you agree that it's a universe, you have superimposed it. Put it through the four stages. You are told there is a cause of the universe. God created, or Brahman, Saguna Brahman, the creator of the universe. God is the creator, Brahman is the creator. Oh, okay. Uh, stage one. Stage two. Find the cause. Where is the cause? Right here. Look, in all things of the universe, you find it as isness, existence, sat. Look at yourself. Neither body nor mind beyond that, consciousness, which is also existence. Go to third stage. Does, the, does anything in the universe have any reality apart from isness? It's only name and form plus isness. Name and form plus sat. Isness itself is the reality. Only one thing, like the clay is out there. In the universe, when you examine the isness, if you get a feel for that, if you get a feel for that, you will realize the isness is you yourself. Only difference is this. That isness is not there in the chair. To understand this, I'll give you a hint. 
if you examine all the things that you see in your dreams, their existence is whose existence actually? Your existence, the dreamer's existence. The dreamer is nowhere in the dream. Dreamer is safe. The person in the dream is the, uh, the dream person, but the one, the, the waking person who is on the bed, who is shut eye and dreaming, that person is not there. Neither the bed is there, nor is this the snoring person there in the dream. But it's that person's mind which is the fundamental existence of the entire dream. Everything in the dream is that person's mind. Similarly, the isness of the entire universe is you, Sat. Then you ask, does this universe have any existence apart from that isness? Cannot, logically. Apart from isness, is not. So, universe has no existence apart from Sat. If the effect has no existence, then is that Sat a cause? It's not a cause. It is just Sat beyond cause and effect. Then that Sat, you cannot call it God, Saguna Brahman. You have to call it Nirguna Brahman, the non-dual Brahman. And you are left with Nirguna Brahman. Who is that Nirguna Brahman? Already you have realized, you are that. This is called Adhyaropa Pavada. Yes. Swamiji, where is in our clay and the pot example, where is the potter? Does Don't bring, it, bring the potter in. You are complicating the... <laughs> <laughs> you see, what... No, I understand the question. I also had this uh, doubt earlier. I always like the snake rope example, but not the clay pot example. <laughs> Why? Because the clay has been made into a pot. Somebody put in effort to make it into various kinds of pots. So that was, is playing in my mind. But that's also, you see, that's why a teacher is required. That's also because our attention is always on the name and shape and function. What the Upanishad wants to say, if you look at the original text of the Upanishad, very interesting, it's easy to miss. What the Upanishad, Chandogya Upanishad, what it wants to say is this. As far as essential reality goes, there is no difference between pot and clay. It's saying that, Mrittika ittyeva satyam, the only reality there is the pot, is the clay. Only reality in the pot is the clay. Not the name, not the form, what the potter has done. Not the shape. Because they, they don't have any reality apart from that. So the potter's work is completely ignored there. Because what the Upanishad wants to prove is the reality of, of, of uh, inherent in the product. Not the process of producing something. Right? So that's what the Upanishad is stressing upon. Our minds are so fixed on, this is called Maya. Our minds are so fixed on name, form and function. Immediately, where is the jeweler? Where is the uh, potter? In the wave and ocean, Bill often asks me, no, wind is producing waves, isn't it? So that is, that is immaterial, it's true, but it is immaterial there. That's not what we are looking for. We are saying, what is the reality of that thing? So the reality of that thing, that's why I always said, what did I say? Upadana karana. What you are asking, potter is called nimitta karana, the efficient cause. The person who transformed or did something to the clay and made it into a part. That part of the example is not to be taken. See, this is the thing. That's why a teacher is necessary. Otherwise, example is also misunderstood. Um, the only way... See, these rishis have realized this truth and they are using uh, several arguments and examples to help us catch it. They are not trying to prove it mathematically. It can't be done. You have to catch it within yourself. But for that, a little guidance is required to open up the knots where it happens to open it up. This is an example of superimposition, desuperimposition. Hold on to the questions. 
I've given this, these um, examples earlier. For example, um, the student who came to the teacher and said, please teach me how to teach me about space. What is space? I don't understand space. Do you remember that example? I gave it once. And the teacher said, space. Um, here, space. And the student looks around and says, what, the garden? No, 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 beyond that, the fence. No, 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 beyond that, the forest. The teacher said, mm, okay, I get it. Difficult case. So <laughs> he said, stay with me and stay in the uh, ashram. And I'm giving you work in the garden. Plant these sunflowers and tend to them. Your duty is morning and evening, you meditate and do everything. And your work is you uh, prepare the ground, sow the seeds and water the plants. And So months pass by and the sunflower plants are quite big. They grow quite tall. So tall and nice sunflowers are there. And the whole front of the ashram is covered with sunflower. You can hardly see anything beyond. And one day in the morning, the teacher says to the student, student, today stop, don't water the plants. Take this sickle and cut all the plants, all of them. Fast, fast, do it, do it, quick, quick, quick. And the student works and works and works and finally finishes. And the teacher says, look, space. <laughs> it's all cleared up. And the student says, oh, I see. Now the point is not in the sunflowers, neither in creating the sunflowers nor in cutting down the sunflowers. It is to reveal what was already there, but we can't see it because of my ignorance. That is ignorance. That is in the words of the teacher, beukufi, confusion, <laughs> foolishness. Because of my foolishness, I couldn't see it. That was removed by this process. There's a definition. In the Vedanta Sar, we see definition of Adhyaropapavada. It is... Um, Nishprapancham prapanchyate, that which is beyond this material universe, that is explained. It's so subtle, we can't catch it. That is explained by this method of superimposition, desuperimposition. Um, one more example. This is a nice one, I haven't given this earlier. So, there's this man who was a rich man. And when he died, he passed his property, which mainly consisted of the elephants he owned to his children. And people did own elephants. I don't know, even nowadays, some maybe still do. In India, people did own elephants. It was, it was seen as a mark of um, wealth, status, because it's a huge expense and it's no good to you. So if you can afford to keep an elephant, then you must be a really rich person. You're throwing away all your money. <laughs> uh, it eats a lot. That means to, to keep an elephant is, is a phrase in many Indian languages, which means a wasteful. Even in English, a white elephant, it's a big government project which eats up money and it's not productive. So, and it's a sign of status. I remember, I remember some, some monasteries also maintain elephants, big monasteries. So I remember one monk, a traditional monk came to meet our abbot. When I became a brahmachari, a novice, a monk came. This was in Deoghar in, in India at that time. And later we heard of the discussion of this visiting monk with our head, who was the head of our ashram. So the first thing that monk established, he wants to show his superiority over our Swami. How many elephants do you own? <laughs> and Swami said, we have some cows in the ashram, but no elephants. And the monk said, well, I have four or five. Now listen to me. <laughs> so because I'm superior, I've got five elephants, you don't have any. And then, so at the most you can maybe take it out for a ride. Sometimes, and nothing else you can do with an elephant. You can pull the sunflowers. You can pull out the sunflowers, yes. <laughs> now, 
this man, he passed his, in his will to three sons. He passed on the elephants he had. Um, he had 17 elephants, the classic story. <laughs> he had 17 elephants. And in the will, he said, the first son, eldest son gets half of it. Unfair, I know, but he gets half. The second son gets one um, third. And the third son gets one ninth. One ninth of the elephants. And of course, you can't cut the elephants. Now, that's impossible. How can you have half of 17 elephants? How can you indeed have uh, one third of 17 elephants or even one ninth of 17 elephants? So they are scratching their heads thinking what to do. How do you divide the dad's property? Uh, and the elephants must have been grinning, you know, looking at them. <laughs> and then his dad's friend, a neighbor who's also very rich, he comes along on his elephant and riding. And uh, so he says, uh, this is the problem. They say, uh, uncle, what do we do? So oh, don't worry. I'll, do, I'll help you out. I donate my elephant to you. He's still sitting on the elephant. I donate my elephant to you. Now divide your property. Now you have 18 elephants. So the first son gets nine. The second, he gets half. So nine, nine is half of 18. The second son gets one third, which is six. One third of 18. So six plus uh, nine is 15. And the third son gets one ninth, which is two. One ninth of 18. So he gets two elephants. So you have 9 plus 6 plus 2, which is 17 elephants. And there it's all divided. And this man says, now I take my elephant back. Problem solved. He didn't even get down from the elephant. Elephant introduced, problem solved, elephant withdrawn. Similarly, the whole thing about creation of the universe introduced, you realize who you are, I am Brahman, creation withdrawn. <laughs> so... Uh, this is Adhyaropa Apavada, superimposition and desuperimposition. I'll pick it up. Yeah, I, I don't think so. Yeah. Superimposition and desuperimposition. Just a method. All this to exa uh, explain the word Upayaha. Upaya means a method. Now you understand. What, is this what does this method do? So Avataraya. So that the Avatara means a descent. So that the, this, we intuitively grasp non-duality. We grasp Aham Brahmasmi. Because if Brahman has not produced the universe or an individual being, then I who appear to be an individual being, I must be Brahman right now. And this universe which appears to be a multifarious, uh, uh, a pluralistic universe must be in depth that one existence right now. And I am that existence. So th this is the reason such passages are given in the Upanishads. You have some questions? Yeah, also one more, hold on to the question. One more thing. Anyatha Chodita. Gaurapada points out the Shrutis, the Upanishads speak of this creation. Notice in how many different ways they speak about it. Creation of the five elements. The Mandukya Upanishad speaks about creation as waking universe, dream universe, causal universe. The Taittiriya Upanishad speaks about it as the creation of space and air and fire and water and earth um, and so on. The Chandogya Upanishad talks about creation of three elements. Taittiriya Upanishad of five elements. Shankaracharya makes a comment there. He says, the question is raised, which is the correct theory of creation? Big Bang theory or steady, <coughs> steady state universe, which is the correct theory? He says none of them are, uh, are meant to be description of the correct theory of the universe. They are all meant to point you back to the one reality there is. 
there is no real universe to talk about what to talk about a correct theory these are all techniques very interesting point this is whenever the, the Upanishads talk about creation they are not interested in the creation they are showing you a way to go back to the reality which is your reality and the reality of the universe Yes. And it, many of times it turns out that it's very counterintuitive to what we actually thought it was. Yes. Uh, so, so how can the like then the question arises: How can the direct experience of non-duality can also be trusted? Direct experience can be trusted. How can that be trusted? Yes, because even to doubt it, you need it. For example, everything can be doubted. Have you heard of the project of Descartes? He started a French philosopher, mathematician, René Descartes. He started by saying that, how can I put all knowledge on firm foundations? So let me start by doubting whatever can be doubted. And where did he stop? Where did he stop? Thought. Uh, I exist. How? Cogito ergo sum. My own existence cannot be doubted because I'm thinking. Even to doubt... You have to admit that the, that the thought itself is there. Vedanta goes a little deeper. The thought itself might disappear, deep sleep. Right? But both the presence and absence of thought are noted, illumined, experienced. Therefore, there must be an experiencer. Not an, not an inference. At first it seems to be an inference. It's some, a lot of experience is going on. There must be something experiencing it. Or sometimes the absence of experience is also noted. Deep sleep, samadhi, what we call unconsciousness, coma. Both the presence and absence of entities experienced, they mean that there must be an experiencer of the presence and absence. It sounds like an inference, but if you follow it carefully, it's not an inference. It's a pointing to something which is always direct and uncontradicted. How can you contradict it? If you contradict it, if you doubt it, you are reaffirming it. That is the only thing that cannot be doubted. Why? What can be doubted? What can be doubted? Logically. Anything that you experience can be doubted. Anything that you speculate about can be doubted. But that which experiences or speculates, that cannot be doubted. Why? To doubt it, that also must be there. To not doubt it also, that must be there. Is a very deep point. In fact, if you know it, you'll understand Advaita as a philosophy, and if you try to feel it, you'll become an enlightened person, right here and now. That is the door to enlightenment. There's a door to understanding Advaita, the core of Advaita, intellectually. And that's also the door to enlightenment also. Try to doubt your own existence. The question is, by what proof is this Atman known? If you put it in, in, in um, actually in Indian philosophy, these are very precisely defined. They say for to claim anything, you must justify it. On what basis are you claiming? Epistemology. How do you justify your knowledge claims? This is the philosophical language. How do I justify my knowledge claims? You must have some source of knowledge. These sources of knowledge are called pramana. Pramana. Pramana is source of knowledge. Don't look so puzzled. You are using it all the time. Right now you are using a pramana. Ears and eyes and smell and taste and touch. Sense organs. Direct perception. One pramana. 
inference which we use in our day-to-day -day activities and almost all of science is based on that. What is science? Observations and inference based on that. Inference, anumana, another pramana. And when you say shruti, upadishad is a pramana, many people misunderstand. Oh, you are supposed to believe it because that's how scriptures are treated in religions. But in, in Vedanta, the scriptures are not meant for believing. They are meant as pointers to see. They're pointing out something, meant for you to get it. You can believe it to begin with because otherwise we will not make progress. Shraddha is necessary. But then you use it to point continuously because the thing is available. If it was something in heaven, something after death, something later on, then you would have to go on belief until that thing happens, until you go to heaven or whatever. But if it is continuously present right now, always available, all you need is pointing out. Either you know it, in which case you are enlightened, or if you don't know it, in which case you are not enlightened, all you need is a pointing out. It will clear the error. So the question is, now the question is, what is the proof? What pramana? What pramana, what, what source of proof is there for such an, oh, such an entity called uh, pure consciousness or Brahman? Uh, the answer is very interesting. No pramana can point to it. It's unknown. Wait. But all pramanas depend on it for functioning. Thinking, hearing, smelling, tasting, understanding, not understanding, remembering, forgetting, all of it takes place in that existence consciousness which we are calling Brahman or Turiya. Try to remove that from the equation, you will see the universe will disappear into darkness. Alright, I'll leave it at that. Now, just let me quote from Shankara's. Shankara has a nice uh, commentary here. Let me just quote one line and then go ahead. I'll quote the Sanskrit and then translate. Just one sentence. This is Shankaracharya's commentary on the 15th verse. Mrilloha vispulingadi drishtanta upanyasehi shrishti chodita prakashita anyathanyatha chasa sarvaha srishti prakara jiva paramatma ekatva buddhi avataraya upaya asmakam. All these examples which are given in the Upanishads, example of clay. Gold. Gold is not mentioned here. We have to introduce it. Gold, iron, sparks. All these examples which are given variously. Notice, if the Upanishad was trying to explain how the universe was really produced, why would they give multiple uh, differing, differing accounts? Then the question will arise, which one is true? But the Upanishad is not interested in finding out a true account of the creation of the universe because it was not truly created at all from the Upanishadic point of view. So, all of these various, he says, anyathanyath, note that they all differ from each other. It's not a defect. It points to the real purpose of the Upanishad. Not to develop a cosmology. Not to give a scientific account of the origin of the universe. No. Rather to point out what? Jiva Paramatma Ekatva Buddhi, the enlightenment about the oneness of the individual and the ultimate reality. That the individual is not an individual, the ultimate reality is not God, it is one non-dual Brahman. To point that out, Upaya Smakam, it is a method for us, a path for us, a technique for us.
A related question is taken up next, 16th verse. Why are so many practices, this is the thing, non-duality is the, uh, the real teaching. Many people ask this, so it's a good, good verse. Why are so many practices, dualistic practices taught? Upasanani karmanicha, he says, uh, different kinds of worship, meditations and rituals. Do puja like this, uh, meditate like that, do japa, pranayama, um, so many activities. Uh, images and forms and mantras and they are all dualistic. So why are they taught? And what good are they? Shouldn't everybody be told that you are Brahman? Take up, everybody should sit with a pot and think about it deeply. And that's it, finished. <laughs> Realize, uh, what? I'm clay, I'm clay. <laughs> no, not clay. I'm Brahman. But that's what will hand, end up happening if you try it straight away. I'm, I've been taught I'm clay. <laughs> So, why are these dualistic forms taught at all by the Upanishads? And the most religions are full of dualistic forms. Temples and churches and different kinds of rituals, prayers, prayers, rituals, meditations, they are all dualistic, most of them at least. So why? Answer. Ashramastrividhahina Ashramastrividhahina Madhyamutkrishta drishtaya Madhyamutkrishta drishtaya Upasanopadishtayam Upasanopadishtayam Tadatham anukampaya Tadatham anukampaya why have all these techniques been taught? Gaurapada says, because there are three classes of spiritual seekers. Hina, he says, the most mediocre, the lowest. Madhyama, the middling. And Utkrishta, the superior. Ashrama, he calls them ashrama. Now, the Sanskrit word ashrama might create confusion because the Sanskrit word ashrama refers to the four stages of life. Brahmacharya ashram, the studentship, youth. Grihastha ashrama, householder life, when you have a career, a family and so on and so forth. Vanaprastha, when you retire from active in involvement with the world. And Sannyasa, when you become a, you give up the world, a monk, a spiritual seeker. So four stages of life, let us say. Four stages of life. These are called ashrama. Another meaning of ashram is of course a monastery. Uh, like this is an ashram. But none of these are meant here. What is meant here are, there are three classes of spiritual seekers. The inferior, the, the middling and the superior. And he says, Drishtaya, on what basis are you classifying? Drishti, their, their world view, their ability, their, their, their philosophical penetration. What they can take, they are of different categories. They are not the same. Since they are not the same, there are different stages of spiritual evolution. All of them will attain enlightenment eventually. But the teaching has to be different. Otherwise it won't take. Um, so for that reason, a variety of practices are given. Now what are these three categories? Gaudapada does not mention. And unfortunately Shankaracharya simply says they have different levels of uh, insight. And for them various practices are given. Luckily, however... Just yesterday, 
Uh, we were studying the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. The very interesting portion, Dr. Mahendranath Sarkar, who is a very scientific-minded person, he dislikes one thing. He's very uh, he's spiritual in his own way, but he dislikes, first of all, he dislikes rituals. And he also does not quite like the avatara idea. And he does not like people worshipping Sri Ramakrishna as an avatara, an incarnation. So he says to Sri Ramakrishna, why do you allow people to touch your feet and uh, you know, worship you like that? And uh, uh, he says, look, he, he's M and many others are standing right there. There's another doctor too. He's saying, no, he's a nice person. He's a good person. But you're all spoiling him, just calling him God and things like that. You're just turning the head of a nice person. That's the thing he says. Then M, the writer of the gospel, comes forward to defend. Sri Ramakrishna is sitting quietly. He's not saying anything. M says, no, otherwise the devotees weep. You know, they feel bad. They want to touch his feet and call him God. So the doctor says, well, that's their mistake. They should be told that. Then M comes up with, a, see, three answers he'll come up with, none of which really stick. The second answer M comes up with is, no, 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 you, you see, God dwells in everybody. He knows the doctor believes in that. God dwells in everybody. God is in the hearts of everybody. And the doctor says, in that case, you should take the dust of everybody's feet. Why only his feet? Then M comes forth, forth with a third argument. He says, uh, yes, but... All, God is not equally revealed in all beings. So, meaning thereby he is maximally revealed in a very spiritual person like Sri Ramakrishna. So, it's alright to take the dust of his feet, touch his feet and call him God or whatever. Doctor is not convinced. Then Sri Ramakrishna steps in and he says, there's a little back and forth. Then he says, listen, there are three kinds of devotees. Match with this. Three kinds of devotees. Uh, and he actually, and he puts them, three categories, the lower, the med medium, or the, uh, uh, high, and the higher, exactly like this, he says. But he's saying this thing, and he explains, but remember, he's explaining the same thing in the language of bhakti. What's the difference between the three? He explains there. Sri Ramakrishna says, the first one, the, the, the lower, he says um, that God is something outside. That's the English translation. God is outside. But if you look at the, the Bengali, that's much more direct. He says, the first one says, Oi Bhagawan. It says, that is God. <laughs> so it's a much more intimate, direct way of saying, that's God. There is God in the temple or the church. There is God in heaven. And that's the first one. I am here, that is God. They're different. I am here, that is God. Here I am. That's God. And this is the world. The second one says that God is in the hearts of everybody. The doctor himself, he felt like that. God is in the hearts of everybody. Deep within there is God. And the superior one, Sri Ramakrishna says, the superior one says, God indeed is everybody. And then he goes on further to say, God and his creation are not different. There is only one. Notice, Three stages, connected with the um, with the pot and clay example. The first stage was when the clay was introduced. What did the person think? Oh, this is a pot. There is a cause, clay. This is the world. There's a cause, God. That is God. 
first type. The second type says, second stage in that example, where do you find that clay? Within the pot. Where the second, second type of devotee is the medium, the, the middling one, finds God in the hearts of all beings. And the third one, which says, God and uh, his creation are one. There is no such thing, separate thing called pot. It is one reality. The clay alone is one reality. Brahman alone is there beyond cause and effect. It's not that there is a cause called God who has created an effect called the world. Rather, there is oneness. Let me put it in other language. The first type of approach is what is called Karya Drishti. Karya Drishti means effect view. Effect view is just like I am, a, I am an entity, you are an entity. These chairs and tables are entities. There is some superior entity called God. That's the first stage. The second stage is, no, 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 it's not a superior, separate, it's, God is not a thing. Among many things, there's one thing called God. A very nice thing, but it's a thing called God. No, no, not like that. The second stage is, God is the reality within each of us. And the consciousness in my heart, we do Vedanta, not the body, not the mind. Uh, there is a witness consciousness. Or the devotee will say, Ishta Devata, the chosen form of God. In my heart, I meditate. I'm not saying there that God is the body, mind, is the chair and the table. No, no. I'm just saying God is the, the Ishta Devata in my heart. And beyond this is the superior devotee who realizes that God alone is this entire universe. There is no difference between outside and inside. What I see with eyes open, I see with eyes closed. Sri Ramakrishna puts it this way. What? God exists when I close my eyes and he doesn't exist when I open my eyes? What kind of God would that be? So oneness. One is seeing God as an effect, as a thing. Other one, higher one is to see God as the cause of everything. And the highest one is to see God beyond cause and effect, non-dual. He put it in the language of devotion. I'm putting it in the language of non-duality uh, of philosophy. Yes. True, true. That's a good way of putting it. The overwhelming worldview of dualism is there is the world, there is the individual and there is God. That's dualistic approach to religion. Most religions are like this. And that's because most people are like this. That's what most people are comfortable with. Then you go a little higher. That God you're speaking about, where is that God? It's also present immanent. In our own hearts. And then finally, us and the world, we are not separate from God. There's only one reality. It's not that God produced a separate thing called man and God and world. There's only non-duality. So, dualism, qualified monism, non-dualism. This is what uh, Gaurapada is saying here. Um, there are three kinds of, I'll come to you. There are three kinds of seekers, inferior, middling and superior. Drishtaya, depending upon their worldview, the way they see things. Upasana upadishtayam tadartham anukampaya. The spiritual practices, mantra, japa, worship, meditation, they are all inculcated, they are taught. Anukampaya, says the Upanishads teach this, Vedanta teaches this out of grace, out of sympathy. Let them also come up. And let, what will they catch hold of? Sri Ramakrishna puts it this way. You can re ascend to the roof of the house. 
you can go up by a staircase um, in those days there was no elevator um, then you can go up by the staircase you can go up by a ladder you can go up by a rope ladder uh, or by a rope but in any in in many in any of these ways you can ascend to the uh, top of the house uh, so different methods um, they are they are they are taught depending on the uh, nature of the seeker now even in the first at, at the at the very beginning you will notice there are different kinds one is i believe in god the first stage of course has to be a belief stage of faith for the seeker the first stage the inferior one is that i believe in god but in this form my krishna my christ my rama my kali and that is god and what about others uh, not interested or outright rejection this is the form this is this is god and this is the worship of god this is how god should be worshiped this is true religion this is so this starts off like that and this person can easily catch up god catch hold of god or worship believe in in this format then you go further that no all the forms of god are the same god same reality is in all forms whether vishnu or kali or father in heaven or jesus or the avatar is rama or krishna they are all the same reality i may have one form in which to worship and you may have another the chosen ideal ishta devata and that's fine that's a higher way of looking at it and then is is even higher way of looking at it that um, this god dwells in everybody it's not just god in many forms but the same god is in all beings this was the stage at which this is what the doctor really believed in but even that you might say if god is in all beings isn't that advaita no 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 advaita would be there is not god and uh, all beings and universe only one reality god and his creation are one and that reality i am you must have the courage to say that the boldness to say that i am that reality which appears as god individual and universe so that is advaita non duality yes hanuman was asked by rama what do you think of me and he gave the beautiful example that the three stages duality qualified monism and non duality i am the servant from the point of view of the body thou art the master uh, i am the um sentient sentient being i am your part and you are the whole and as the atman as pure consciousness thou and i are one iti me nishchitamati this is my conviction not one of them all of them as your perspective changes but of course a hardcore hardcore non dualist you know what they will say um and say that the first two are of course delusion because i am not body so you if you say as body means you are in delusion as the subtle body sentient being that's also delusion i am atman that's the truth so as atman as pure being i and god are one that is the conclusion <laughs> uh, so that would be a very hardcore non dualist the todapuri kind who would say that okay and shruti the upanishad does it out of compassion all the varieties of teachings and sri ramakrishna tells dr sarkar all these are there for he he points out all devotees are not alike points out to dr sarkar also don't think you are the most superior and there's something far beyond you also 
Dr. Sarkar is the middling kind. Yes. Swamiji, talk, going back to the hard point uh, of the Vedantas, uh, and referring to your point about Shruti, Pramana. <laughs> so, if the role of the Shruti as Pramana is to point out uh, your real nature, yes. why then do we not call the Gita Shruti? Or, even going further afield, why can't we call Nagarjuna as Karakas also Shruti? You should. But uh, remember, Shruti, here we mean by convention, the Hindu scriptures, the Vedas. And there they make the original scriptures, the Shrutis, which were directly revealed to the Rishis. We might call it revealed knowledge. And the derivative ones, like Gita and all the others. Mandukya Karika, for example. Mandukya Upanishad is Shruti. But the Karika, which is doing the same thing. In fact, doing it much more clearly, pointing out your reality. But it's not considered Shruti. Because it's derivative, it's based on the Upanishads. So, that's what Vivekananda did. He said, what is the Veda? Is it only the four books of the Hindus? He said, no, it's spiritual knowledge. And this is eternal knowledge. It is embodied in those four books, but it's also embodied in the different scriptures of the world. The whole Vedas, are they spiritual knowledge? Not at all. Lots of things are there. There's poetry there. There is the worship of the Vedic gods there. There's mythology there. That's not important. There are obscure religious rituals there which have outdated 5,000 years ago, they were old. So, those are, those are not important. It's the essential teachings of the Upanishads which are important. And that's, Vivekananda says, Veda literally means knowledge. And he says, it is found in all the great religious traditions. Has it ended? Is God's book finished? He says, no. All the teachings in the past, in all the religions and civilizations, we accept with respect. All that are there in the present, we accept. And to all those that will come in the, in the future, I await with open arms. Absolutely so. It's not just Vivekananda being very liberal today. Um, Sureshwaracharya found a beautiful verse. Sureshwaracharya, the most erudite among Shankaracharya's disciples, who wrote Naishkarmya Siddhi and all. In one of his Vartikas, he says, By whatsoever method the seeker is led to an intuitive grasp of the truth, that is to be taken as a genuine teaching. I've forgotten. Just, it says, yaya, yaya, by whatever, whatever method, whichever, whichever method, you're led to enlightenment. All that should be taken as, uh, accepted as, should be acceptable as uh, a genuine teaching. So yes, by any method whatsoever. Yeah. But the uh, hardcore Vedanti, now, that, now it starts, the next verse onwards. Um, I will not mention it now. I will take it up next time. What did we just do? Verse number 16. So, ashramas trivida means three kinds of seekers. Inferior, middling and superior. This we understand. What are they? We get an idea from Sri Ramakrishna. I just tell you what Shankaracharya said. He didn't explain what the difference is. He just says, Drishti Darshana Samatyam, the capacity of insight, based on that threefold. But what are the, the three categories? He doesn't mention. He just says, I'll read out the Sanskrit and translate. Upasana Upadishtayam Tadartham Manda Madhyama Drishtya Ashrama Adhyartham Karmanicha. He says, these have been taught, these techniques have been taught. Oh, important point he makes. These techniques have been taught for the inferior and the middling aspirant. 
Then what about the superior aspirant? Wednesday class. Yes. Mandukya. Gaurapada says, come to me for the superior. I'm going to give you the direct teaching, the concentrated teachings. So come, come on Wednesdays. So that is the superior aspirant. Um, so he says, the middling and the inferior aspirants, for them all these have been taught. Karmanicha, the rituals too. All the rituals. Here he means the Vedic rituals, but we can take it as all the kinds of rituals we do in temple and church and all. Nacha atma eka eva dvitiya iti nishchita uttama drishtyartham. Not for those who have got clarity about the oneness of Atman and Brahman. I am Brahman. This clarity. I'm not saying enlightenment. He says this clarity, conviction, penetration is coming. It's not really meant for them. But be careful, don't give it up. You're in inviting disaster. Dayaluna Vedena by the most kind and sympathetic and loving Veda. Veda is very loving. Anukampaya Sanmargaga uh, Santaha by um, grace. It is giving to those spiritual seekers. Sanmarga, that means who are following the path of righteousness, those who want to realize God. Katham imam uttamam uttamam ekatva drishtim prapnu yuhu. So this is saying, he's quoting the attitude of the Vedas. Katham, how? Imam, these people, he's saying, how these little, the Vedas are feeling sorry for the inferior and middling. How will they come to the Wednesday class, basically? So I'm training them up to come to Atma ekatva drishti. That they will come to the, the realization of the oneness of Atman. This vision of oneness, how will they attain to it? There are actually many people who don't like it. I am religious, but I like chanting these things, doing this puja, going to the temple and bowing down before my chosen eye. I'm happy there. This is just disturbing me. So to be careful here. You must con- one must continue with one's practice. Never ever give up the practice because uh, uh, it can actually lead to uh, psychological disturbance. There is a support, a spiritual support which we have built up by our practices. And Gaurapada says it's very good. And the Veda supports it. But go forward. If you don't go forward, what will happen is he will say later on. And what is that great vision the Vedas are pushing us towards? He has given a few quotes. Shankaracharya gives quotes. Um, Keno Upanishad, Yan manasana manute yenahur manomatam tadeva brahmhatvam vidhi nedam yadidam upasate. Keno Upanishad, what cannot be thought of by the mind, if it cannot be thought of by the mind, can you pray to it? If you're praying, you're thinking. If it can't be thought of, you can't pray to it. Can you meditate upon it? No. It's not an object of the mind. That which is not an object of the mind, that which the mind cannot think about, cannot imagine, cannot conceive, by which the mind imagines, conceives, thinks, understands, remembers and forgets. What is that? That subjective consciousness, the pure consciousness. Tadeva brahmatvam vidhi. Know that alone to be the ultimate reality. Brahman. Na idam yadidam upasate. Not that which you worship as, very beautiful, not that which you worship as this. This Brahman. This my Lord. A thing. A superior thing, no doubt. See, it is my understanding that the great prophets of the Abrahamic uh, traditions, the, of the Judaic tradition, 
when they strongly uh, wrote against idol worship, the commandments. This is what they had in mind. I have not come across this kind of an interpretation, but uh, I mean, it is there actually, but uh, that it's not a thing out there. So you shouldn't worship a thing as God. But of course, um, that's not how it is understood in the Abrahamic traditions. The, most of the teachings there, God in heaven, God as father or Allah, it's, it's that first uh, group that there is a God. So it's good. That begins with that. But by this definition, it's also a that, an idol. Something different from you. So, not And then they made the further mistake of thinking that the images worshipped by the Hindus were like the idol worship, you know, they're worshipping. But no Hindu worships a stone or, a, or a, uh, they're not worshipping plastic or paper or stone or, no. In Durga Puja, you see the greatest, the autumnal worship of the Divine Mother in Bengal. After the five-day worship, what is done to the image? It's tossed into the river with, with great, great joy and fanfare and... So if that is God, then why would you toss it into the river? Nobody, not even the child thinks it's God. Uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's called an adhara, avalambana, support on which you can fix and worship and adore. But the support is not God, it's a material thing. So this is the meaning of Kena Upanishad. But the greatness of the Veda is, it understands some people need a support. So you may need a form, a name, a mantra, a technique of meditation, a way of conceiving something. And so many things are given. Somebody said to me, a practitioner of Kundalini Yoga, no, it's in the spine, right? Um, around so many fingers from here, uh, in the heart chakra. From an Advaitic, Gaudapada's point of view, what would Gaudapada say? Really, after all this, the spine? <laughs> yeah, you are all laughing because you are in men's day class. <laughs> but don't do it outside. People will get upset, angry. They'll say you are a bunch of atheists. Remember, this very Upanishad, the Vedas, fully approve of those methods. I need a place to... My mind is fixed in the body. Give me a place in the body to concentrate, I can do that. Don't ask me to concentrate on pure consciousness. How can I do that? I have no idea at all what you're talking about. But if you say sit straight, ah. If you say close your eyes, ah. If you say breathe in five counts and release ten counts, okay. And hold for um, fifteen counts, okay. And don't do five ten. That's not the that's not the ratio. <laughs> uh, it's uh, four sixteen eight. But okay, I know what you what you're telling me. Now visualize a lotus at the heart chakra and make it radiant and put the deity there. Okay, I understand what you're talking about. So it is very useful. And the person, after some time, the clarity comes. For everybody, clarity comes. I'll come to you. What else? Tat Tvamasi, the Chandogya Upanishad. I'm quoting from Shankaracharya. What is the thing to be attained? That thou art. Another quotation, Atme Vedam Saravam, again from Chandogya Upanishad. The Atman alone is everything. So this is the level to which one must finally rise. The next few verses, which we'll, be do, we'll do next time. Remember, there's a gap. Day after tomorrow, I'm off to the Bahamas. Not on a cruise, <laughs> uh, but there are lectures there. I'll be back 
on the 25th. So the next uh, Vedanta class, the Wednesday class will be on the 27th. 27th. So we are missing one class in between. Um, what will happen in the next few verses is, Gaurapada, remember, I am a follower of Sri Ramakrishna. We are all inclusive. We are very nice. Gaurapada always is not so nice. He will now go on a rant against dualistic uh, approaches. So he is very much an elitist. So he is going to say, what is the problem with dualism? Next few verses. See, there are some great themes in the um, Karika, Gaurapada Karika. A philosopher said, Gaurapada talks about um, Advaita, Ajata, Avirodha, um, Asparsha. Non-duality, non-origination, non-touch, um, non-contradiction. Non-contradiction, non-touch, Asparsha. I might add one more thing. Uh, that non-mind, amani bhavan, no mind. So no duality, no origination, no, um, no contradiction, um, no touch. That means you, the world of appearance has no effect at all on you, the reality. And no mind. So these are some of the great themes of um, Gaurapada. And this no contradiction, avirodha, is going to come up next. To establish that, he will show the problem with the dualistic approach. There's multiple problems he will show, and they are really there. One is, the entire thing depends on faith, which is a terrible problem in today's world. When faced with the attacks of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, I haven't seen a single um, rabbi or priest or theologian, you know, all the debates you see, none of them come off well. You can't. Why can't you? Because all the religion these people are talking about are in the, that first level. And that is entirely faith-based. In fact, the teachings of the Bhakti Sutras, they will tell you, don't talk to people who criticize religion. Why? There's a reason. Because the kind of religion you are practicing is faith-based. It will be disturbed. The whole point is to make progress, not to fight with others. So, first of all, it's entirely faith-based. Second, Gaudapada will point out, they all differ from each other. There is no underlying unity. So there is fanaticism. Mine is right, yours is wrong. Obviously, because the forms of Vishnu is right and Shiva is wrong. Or um, one will say uh, Christianity is right and Islam is wrong. Or something like that. Because there's clearly differences there. If you allow difference, then the, what will happen? He says, Raga Dvesha, I will choose one and dislike the other. Okay. I will choose one and dislike the other. There is preference. There is preference. There is choice. And preference and choice will lead to unhappiness, uh, to, to fanaticism. And that leads to fights. Parasparam Viruddhyanti, he will say, they fight among each other. But if you take the, uh, the point of view of the non-dualist, from that point of view, all of these are good practices. They are all appearances. If the entire world is an appearance of me, the Brahman, what objection can I have to Krishna or Christ? That's the best appearance possible. The finest appearance is, the most sattvic appearance is God with form, with avatar, excellent. All full of sweetness. At one place, Sri Ramakrishna tells Bhavanath, he says, 
there are these two paths, the path of knowledge and the path of devotion. In the path of knowledge, that one reality appears full of radiance. In the path of devotion, that one thing, he says, it appears full of sweetness. So, it is the different things which we are experiencing in different ways. There can be no contradiction. How can you have fanaticism if you are a non-dualist? First of all, they are all one with you. How can you fight with yourself? The theist, the atheist, the Christian, the Muslim, the Hindu, the Buddhist, they are all one with you. So he goes on. It, so this, this approach is rational, it is based on experience, it gives a foundation to harmony, uh, there is no contradiction with it against anything else. So, so many things he will go on and uh, not in an always nice way. Oh, elephants, here's an elephant story coming up next. Um, he says, the dualists have contradictions with each other, but we, they have no contradiction. This teaching has no contradiction. It is avirodha with the dualistic teachings. Why not? And he says, imagine you are riding your elephant, um, the elephant of non-dualism. <laughs> it's a non-dualistic elephant through the uh, village road. And there's this crazy guy standing on the roadside. He says, come, let's have an elephant fight. Ra race your elephant against mine. Let's fight our elephants together. It's an elephant fight. Obviously, there can be no elephant fight because he's crazy. He has no elephant. I'm sure the dualist would be delighted with this guy. <laughs> this is the harmony he's talking about. Because you don't have a leg to stand upon. What will you... <laughs> so one illusion can clash with another illusion. No illusion clashes with the, with the truth. Um, so his approach is, the same rope is mistaken by somebody as a snake, somebody as a garland, somebody as um, what a computer cable maybe. That's not a classical example, but anyway. <laughs> Now, the snake and the garland and the computer cable are mutually contradictory. It can't be all of them. It can't be all of them. They are all exclusive. It has to be one or the other. But if you realize it's a rope, first of all, you know the truth now. Second, you also know all of them are talking about the same thing. They just don't know it. And you can honestly say you are all seeing the truth in your own way. So he will go on into this. As a critique, I was just thinking today, I'll end with this. This is fine. And Swami Vivekananda, he, he goes on. He in fact says, on non-duality we can have a, a harmony. And he puts non-duality as the final thing in his teachings. Swami Vivekananda does. The only problem with this is, if you require this, the superior kind of seeker to understand this, then you, are mean, you mean that those who are... Um, dualistic or on the middle stages, they won't understand this. So how will they be non-fanatical? They'll continue to be fanatical or they'll continue to have those problems with faith and reason. There I think it's Sri Ramakrishna's greatness where he comes in and says, even at the dualistic path, even in whatever your approach to God, there's no need to be fanatical. You can actually love God in your own particular way while respecting the approaches of all others Ayan Maharaj's book, Infinite Paths to Infinite Reality. Because that reality is infinite, it can be approached in different paths. He, um, Swami Bhajanan just pointed this out. He says this gradation, superior, inferior, though Sri Ramakrishna mentions it, it's Vivekananda who took it up strongly. It is actually an Advaitic approach. But if you see in general, Sri Ramakrishna does not say it is higher or lower. He doesn't make a difference. 
if you remember yesterday's um, very strange example he gave, a simple example. He says, look at this room. Depending on where you are standing, you will see it differently. Whether you're standing at the edge or in the middle of the room, you see it differently. A perspectival approach. There he doesn't say the one who's standing in the middle is superior to the one who's standing at the edge of the room. No. So Sri Ramakrishna's approach is somewhat, is flat, is not hierarchical. Uh, this is a little hierarchical. It's a bit uh, elitist that way. All right, we'll end with that question. Yes. Yes. Say if you've graduated to the highest level or you're already there, do you still do those practices which are meant for the first two levels? You can. Graduated means you have to be careful and watch what you are doing, whether we need those practices or not. Remember, all those practices can be fully justified from a non-dualistic point of view. Sri Ramakrishna continued to visit the Kali temple to the end of his days. Shankaracharya, after his fullest realization also, helped. Uh, also established all dualistic practices and temples and he wrote beautiful hymns. One is, it is helpful for others. It sets a good example for others. And second is, it's not false from your point of view. Why? I'll tell you. Established in the non-dualistic point of view, one can um, eat and talk and hold a job and read Vedanta. All these are dualistic things. But you know it's all Brahman. The Vedantic, the, the Gita verse, Brahmar Panam Brahmahavi. If you can walk and talk and hold a job and eat and drink, why can't you worship and do puja and meditate? Of course you can. But you need not. It's a thing. From a non-dualistic perspective, the, the person who is developing, do they need it? Yes. The one who has reached this so-called third level, do they need it? No. They might not. It might simply be like Raman Maharshi. But you might do all this also without the slightest hesitation. Is it possible that you can slip back? No, once uh, enlightenment comes, if it's just an intellectual clarity, of course one can slip back. One hasn't progressed very far anyway. But if there is a breakthrough, spiritual breakthrough, then generally one does not slip back. There is no question of a real insight. Where will you, from what will you slip back into what? <laughs> um, a simple story which I read. There was this uh, monk who was visiting a village and there was a rich man of the village, a landlord, would come to him daily, the monk would sit under a tree, would come to him daily with his questions and the monk wouldn't reply. A uh, few days later, the gentleman came and invited the monk to food at his house. Come and, and the monk was in a very good mood, the teacher was in a very good mood. He said, all right, I'll go and have food uh, at your place today. So he goes and this rich man is very happy, they have prepared very good food. And the monk comes with his begging bowl. And the rich man sees the begging bowl is completely full of mud. So dirty. And the monk says, put it here, you the food. And the rich man says, such nice food is spoilt and you'll get sick if you try to eat that. The monk says, oh yes, what should we do? Well, we should empty the bowl. And they tossed out, the monk tossed out the mud. Now put it in there. The rich man said, no, it's still dirty. The monk said, then what should we do? Well, wash it. He washed it nicely. And then now you put it. No, it's still a little bit of smell there, you know. What should we do? Scrub it properly. So it's scrubbed nicely. And it's shiny. Then what should we do? Now you can put the food there. And they put the food there. The monk ate it. And then the, when the monk was going away, the rich man said, Sir, could you please answer my question? And the monk said, 
What a fool you are. I've answered your questions. <laughs> your question, he said, give me some teaching. I said, what a fool you are. I've answered your question. I've given you the teaching. What is the teaching? First, our head is full of mud. <laughs> so in the clay. So first empty it. Chitta Shuddhi, purification of the mind. Then comes that, that it's still smeared, it's still not enough. It has to be washed, the mind has to be sharpened. That is uh, Chitta Ekagrata, meditation. First Karma Yoga, then Upasana, meditation. And then, then that ignorance is there. I still don't know, I have a pure and concentrated mind, but I don't know the reality. Then these teachings will be helpful. And then you are enlightened. You've had a nice meal, tummy is full. So, three levels of spiritual practice. Which is why they, the point was to eat the meal. But unless the conditions are right, it'll just make a terrible mess. So, the conditions are given by the spiritual practices. But again, this is a very non-dualistic way of looking at, and others would say looking down at other spiritual practices. Just preliminary practices. And the real thing is the Wednesday class. All right. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanam Astum